Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back to Talk Dizzy to Me. My name is Dr. Abby Ross. I'm a vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist, joined as always by Dr. Danielle Tolman. She's also a vestibular physical therapist, and we are coming off of quite the high. We went to Minnesota for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapies International Conference for Vestibular Rehab. That is a mouthful. I like to use the abbreviation, the ANPT's ICVR. <laughs> and we decided after the show that, or after the conference, that it would be really cool to have someone who actually planned the event, knows all the ins and outs of the event, and also knows the ins and outs of the ANPT, the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, to come on our show and share some really cool information with our listeners including some clinical pearls of what we learned from the conference. So today we have Rachel Wellens on the show. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I have to say this was like the Super Bowl of vestibular therapy and something that I was so looking forward to. I'm pretty sure I emailed you the day that you opened registration for the conference because I was so worried about getting registered and getting in. I know the uh, first year um, that you guys held the conference back in 2019, I think, um, there was such an overwhelming response that people, um, it was just, it was overbooked. You guys had so many people show up that it was crazy. We did. Yeah. And this year, um, our numbers were a little bit under, it was actually 2018 was the first conference. Um, and we had a total of about 550 people, which I think last time was about 700. But given that we had COVID um, and so many challenges, we were super happy with the turnout and people from over 20 different countries, which I think, um, you know, made us truly the international conference. I did not realize that 20 different countries. Can you name a few of them? Um, I know there was France represented, Brazil, um, England, um, Canada, and um, Portugal. Um, wow. I had a very nice happy hour with one of the therapists from Portugal and, and a bunch of the other vestibular sick people on Friday night. Um, so yeah, a bunch of them, which is amazing. Speakers so cool. from around the world too. Mm-hmm. That was really, really amazing. I, I have to say the lineup of presenters was just absolutely phenomenal. And I loved the organization of everything where we had a single track. We didn't have to pick and choose which presentations to go to. We got the whole lot of everything and got to hear every single person speak, which was just great. And then also having uh, Dr. Sue Whitney keep everybody on task and everybody on time was phenomenal as well. That was so cool. Yeah, I'm glad you guys really like that format. Um, personally, I really like that it was like a half an hour. So it kept it, even though, you know, we were we we're in conference for a while, obviously we're all interested and engaged in the topic, but those days can certainly drag on. But having it be like a half an hour kept it really refreshing too. Yeah, I agree. Before we get more into the conference, because there's a lot to unpack there, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in the vestibular world, how you got involved with ANPT and even the conference? Sure. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a crazy story. So I went to physical therapy school at University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. And um, my senior year, there had always been a really good um, 
like a, a really good tradition of people doing independent study projects. And I really looked up to upperclassmen because they would present them to the lower classmen. I was like, this is really cool. I want to do something like that. I was always very interested in neuro. So I met with my neuro professor and was like, I want to do an independent study project. I want it to be something in neuro. And she's like, have you heard of this area called vestibular rehab? It's physical therapy for dizziness. And I was like, I haven't heard of this. What's this all about? And this is, you know, circa 2002. Um, so it's still, you know, I think the profession was a little bit, not in its true infancy, but maybe toddlerhood for sure. Um, and I was like, no, I'd, I'd love to get into that. So looked into topics and actually the topic for my independent study project was a differential diagnosis of dizziness, which I think is really amazing because 20 years later, like I still use that knowledge, you know, every, not every day, I don't see patients every day in my current role, um, but certainly every week I'm doing a differential diagnosis of dizziness and really cool. So after that went to work and wasn't really in a position to do vestibular rehab, finally um, back in about 2005. 2006 was able to step into a role where I was doing outpatient, outpatient vestibular rehab and then went to the Herdman course. So that's kind of my entry into the vestibular world, did Herdman course in 2008. Um, so getting involved with the ANPT. Um, so when I transitioned into academia in 2011, I went to CSM and was like, okay, I'm a professor now. I got to do this service thing and I got to do service to the national organization. So I went to the vestibular SIG meeting because, you know, I like my vestibular stuff. And um, there's literally papers all about signing up for duties. And I was like, oh, podcast, that would be interesting. I like put my name on the list. And then all of a sudden I become the podcast coordinator of the vestibular SIG. And so, I mean, that's literally how these things happen. And I guess my other side corollary to people who are intimidated in getting involved in the ANPT, it's like, it's so easy to get involved with the SIGs and get involved in a small role. And then from that, you can transition to bigger roles. So I did podcasts for a while, moved on to online education. And and then um, really wanted to run for a um, a more formal post, and so that's when I ran for chair elect, and and um, have been chair elect since 2019. Uh, chair elect and then chair in 20 starting in 2020. That's amazing. I guess we we do need to shout out the uh, Neuro PT Vestibular Rehab SIGs podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, make sure you're checking them out if you haven't already. Um, started listening to their episodes, but we love the content that you guys put out as well. I mean, there's a lot that the vestibular SIG has to offer being an APTA member and then going into the special interest group. I mean, you guys have amazing articles. There's all these different resources, podcasts. I love getting the emails of the abstracts of the week um, and kind of staying current on all of the research topics there. Um, so you guys do an amazing, amazing job of keeping us informed and keeping the resources flowing for all of us vestibuloholics. Thank you. Appreciate it. So make sure you guys are checking that out. Um, you can go and check them out at neuropt.org. And then you can find um, the special interest group for the vestibular rehabilitation section of um, the ANPT. Uh, but make sure you're checking that out because it's super duper important, especially moving forward um, for future conferences. Now, tell me, when are we doing the next conference for ICVR? Ooh, that is a wonderful question. So um, I don't know for sure, but I'll tell you what I do know for now. So we are 
are going to meet the ICVR planning team and the ANPT executive office. So those are the staff, people who are not PTs, but who keep us rolling. Um, and without them, we would be nowhere. I will say that 100%. Um, so anyway, we're going to meet with them on November 10th to sort of do a recap of what, how was the conference, what was good, what do we need to improve on, and planning for the next time. So originally, this conference was planned for 2021, but as you guys know, was postponed due to COVID. And I think if I had, I, I think the original intention was to try to keep it on an odd year because the Baronet Society, which is the international organization uh, for vestibular physicians, researchers, therapists, et cetera, they meet on the even years. So I think it would make sense to have this on an odd year. So in my head, I'm targeting 2025, but that is, that is like mere rumor and speculation at this time. That's just kind of where I would like it to be. The good news is that vestibuloholics like ourselves will at least have a trip to plan every single year moving forward. <laughs> Maybe not. When's the next Baronets? What year is that? That'll be 2022. They meet in the summer. They met in Madrid this past year in 2020. Or excuse me. They met in Madrid in 2022. It'll be 2024. And right. I think the rumor I heard was Rome. That'd be sweet. So maybe 2023, we have an off year, but then thereafter, we should have something to look forward to every single year as vestibular therapists or clinicians, whatever discipline you're in as a listener. Now, talk to me a little bit more about the ANPT and vestibular SIG and Danny mentioned some perks of belonging to those two organizations, but also uh, who can belong and what can they expect by being a member? Okay, awesome. So anyone who is an ANPT member can join for free. You can join any of the SIGs. You can join all eight SIGs. The vestibular SIG is one of eight. Um, so also to be an ANPT member, of course, you need to be an APTA member as well. Um, so if you're an APTA and ANPT member, sign up for the vestibular SIG is free. So other than some of the things um, that you guys have already mentioned about the benefits, one of the biggest benefits, I think, is that if you are are a member, you can be listed in the vestibular map of providers. So if you are unfamiliar with this resource, it's right on our website. It's a map in the United States. So if someone says, oh, I'm looking for a vestibular provider in Wyoming, boom, you can click on Wyoming and find someone there. So that is a great way to um, get patients and to kind of put yourself out there for sure. And that is only available to members. Um, so of course, um, one of the things that are some newer initiatives that I um, kind of have worked on recently posted research collaboration documents. So if you are someone who's interested in research collaboration, you can list yourself. Um, you can either find people to collaborate with or list yourself and other people can contact you because um, we definitely want to support all the great research moving forward as that is um, the foundation on which our practice lies. Um, and some of the things I'm going to be working on kind of in the future, I feel like the vestibular SIG does a really great job of getting information out, right? We have our newsletters, we have our podcasts, we have abstract of the week, social media, et cetera, et cetera. 
But what I really want it to be is a center where members can converse. So I'm looking to have some, you know, especially now since pandemic, we're all used to using Zoom. I really want to have, you know, a semi-regular Zoom session where people can come and bring that challenging case, network with members, um, you know, talk through the things you're struggling with in the clinic and, and approaches. Because very often, as you guys know, vestibular therapists, they're like the only vestibular person in their clinic. And where do they go if they have questions, right? So we want the vestibular sig to kind of be that home for so many people. Absolutely. It's so important to have that other person to bounce ideas off of or um, hard cases off of. A lot of people have mentors, but some don't. Like some are that one person that they were designated as a vestibular therapist for their clinic and they get sent off to these classes, but they have no one to kind of converse with. And having that space is super, super important, especially as you develop like across your career. So having that that home, that community, that base is really important and really, really uh, great to have. Yeah. So let's jump into the conference itself now. And what we'd really like to bring you audience is some clinical pearls of what we took away from the conference. And maybe a good starting point would be talking about the setup of the conference. So day one of the conference, everyone comes in and it's more maybe 5.30 into the evening where we're all in the exhibit hall. We're looking at the poster presentations. We're chatting with the exhibitors in there. And so that, therefore, let's start with maybe some of the posters that caught our eye. Um, so of the posters that caught our eye, there are so many. Um, but one of the ones that I personally really loved um, was a poster all about using ocular motor findings for differential diagnosis um, by Lisa Brecky. And she did a great job of, you know, finding this central finding in a 27-year-old male. She found some opsoclonus and she showed me a video. It was really cool. And, you know, working with physicians being like, wait, you know, this, the, uh, there was no central diagnosis and what are we going to do? And um, there was a little bit of a story which she could give you more details, but the uh, patient ended up being diagnosed with perineoplastic syndrome. And it was the first time the patient had testicular cancer. And I was like, wow. I mean, that just spoke really strongly. Like we don't fully appreciate the role of differential diagnosis in this. I mean, we do appreciate it, but we are so good at it and catching so many of these things. It, it never, it always surprises me and it really shouldn't The just the intelligence of physical therapists out there and the things that we're able to catch. Wow. Yeah, that is quite moving. And it, it does reiterate the importance of differential diagnosis and paying attention to the little things. If something seems off, or maybe there's a couple signs that you're seeing to really get another discipline involved when you need to. One of the ones that stuck out to me, and I am blanking on the gentleman's name that I had such a long conversation with. Danny, you were there too, but it was a poster about expectations of therapists leaving school and entering the workforce in terms of vestibular. And it was really cool to look at the different graphs they had on their poster to see what exactly is expected. Are, are students expected to come out of school and be able to treat a patient with vestibular dysfunction? Or is it something that we expect them to not know much about and they learn it? In my case, I really didn't know much about vestibular at all. And everything that I uh, was taught was when I actually got to a clinic that was seeing patients with vestibular dysfunction. And it wasn't until then that I really even thought about the vestibular system. Truly, I could have been doing balance exercises and, you know, gait activities and all that, but I wasn't really thinking vestibular until I got into a 
just vestibular clinic. So Danny, do you remember, do you remember that poster? I absolutely do. Um, I had my wheels turning because this is actually something my husband and I talk about frequently. He's a professor at a university here down in Georgia, and he is in higher education and does a lot of research in his field. And we were talking about the expectations of um, students coming out of PT school and what their knowledge is on the vestibular level. And one thing that um, kind of stuck out to me was that depending on where you go is going to depend on what you're exposed to. You know, where I, I went to Misericordia University, not too far from Scranton, um, but we had the uh, the um, treat of having Jeff Walter teach a whole weekend course and kind of expose us to that. Um, you know, people who go to Duke are going to have more of an exposure because of uh, Dr. Rick Daniel. Um and other vestibular programs are popping up more and more in some of these universities, and and some aren't. Um, so it's interesting to see what students are coming out with. But I think the other topic that he touched on on that poster was what the students' perception was on their knowledge of vestibular therapy and how they felt um, their level of competence rated when they came out of um, school and moving into the clinic. Um, so that was actually really interesting and something I'd like to look more into uh, as potentially a, a research collaborator or maybe helping out uh, looking into something similar because it's just really been interesting to me. Um, if everyone's had the opportunity to be exposed to as much vestibular rehab as a student, if maybe they would go into that direction um, a little bit more and having that. Um, there was another poster that uh, really caught my eye. And this was the, um, I think, Dr. Um, uh, Merfeld and um, uh, Andrew Wagner. They were looking at the otolith canal function with tilting. Um, I know that they worked with um, all healthy individuals, but uh, I thought that was a really, really interesting poster and kind of opened our eyes into some potential things that we need to look into for the rehab aspect of working on those. Now, all of us don't have one of those crazy uh, chairs that move in all six planes, but it'll be interesting to see what their work um, does moving forward because it sounds like they've got some more things in the works as to what um, exercising those otoliths would really do for um, our vestibular rehab. There's a lot of really great posters. Abby, you and I kind of got stuck that we got shooed out of the uh, exhibitor hall by the end of the night because we wanted to sit and talk to everybody. But they were they were phenomenal. They you guys did a great job of curating all of the uh, the um, uh, people who submitted to present. I thought that was really really great. Yeah, and also I want to say if you listen to this or Rachel, if there's a way you can look it up, I want to give credit to the poster that I talked about. So if you're listening and that poster was yours, please email us or send us a DM so we can put you in our show notes. Um, let's move on to the actual conference. So the way it was set up was there was two full days of presentations. And as Rachel had mentioned, they were 30 minutes apiece and I don't know, maybe eight a day, something like that. More, yeah. I think there were more. I think there there were a total of twenty three speakers, so it was probably oh, wow. like twelve on the first day and eleven on the second, or something along those lines. Okay, yeah. So a lot. So the one thing I will say, I agree with you. The thirty minutes was great because you got to hear from so many different speakers, and it really kept your attention going. I will say there were some presentations where I needed probably at least an hour to really. <laughs> process the information that I was hearing and seeing on the slides. And I think one of those was uh, Dr. Helminski's, for example. <laughs> you could hear everybody's brains just exploding uh, in the room as she was going through. It was just absolutely phenomenal um, to listen to her talk and work through her atypical BV 
Um, but you, you could tell that some people were, were having a hard time keeping up, but uh, it was just absolutely amazing. Again, you know, 30 minutes, it was absolutely perfect to kind of hold your attention to that topic and to keep things moving. And so that we got to get everybody, uh, we got to listen to everybody throughout the entire conference that we didn't have to pick and choose. So that was definitely something I was really, really grateful for. So it was funny um, after after her talk. So uh, my, you know, one of the greatest things about these conferences is I get to like hang out with all my friends. And I really, truly mean it when I say that the people I've met through the ANPT and in the vestibular world are friends. And to have friends and colleagues from across the country has been one of the greatest privileges of my career. Um, but some of my friends, some of my really good friends, locally, um, Sarah McDowell and Sydney Dewey. Uh, I do research with them and they're at Our Lady of the Lake Hearing and Balance Center. Um, but Sarah was like, okay, I think we need to do a BPPV retreat and I'm going to bring my vestibular first like headset. And she's like, we just need to spend like a few hours. She's like, we'll go to my parents' shore house uh, or beach house. Yeah, there's my jersey coming out. Um, she says, we'll go to the, my, the house in Gulf Shores and we will like talk through this and we're going to figure all this out and all these different maneuvers and the jam and everything like that. And we're going to all come away. And, and it was it was so funny, but it's so true that um, I, I would hope that would happen. I love that. That's yeah. awesome. That might be another vacation to add to our agendas, right? That sounds <laughs> great. So let's talk about, I just want to give our audience an overview of the topics. I believe there were eight topics. Maybe that's where I got the number eight from, but I'm going to read through these topics and then we can kind of dive into whichever ones we want to, anything that stuck out to us from the conference to share. So we went from vestibular perception and cognition to cervical spine, we had BPPV, central vestibular disorders, concussion, motor learning in the vestibular system, remote monitoring, uh, and children with vestibular disorders. And then we wrapped up the conference with vestibular implants. I'll start by saying that I truly loved the cervical spine aspect of it. Um, some of the topics that were covered in that just it made me feel really good about um, what I was seeing in the clinic with a lot of patients that had suboccipital tightness and the kind of that layer of tension headache. Um, but it also gave me some tools that I could bring back to the clinic, you know, by the, you know, Tuesday that, you know, the day we got back from the, from um, our conference, you know, performing ocular motor testing with having the patient in neck torsion, right. Um, and finding different ways to figure out if it's more cervicogenic or if it's more vestibular. And I thought that was truly eye-opening and I greatly, greatly appreciated what they had to present on that just because it is kind of a little bit of a um, uh, talked about subject as far as, you know, some people believe in it, some people don't. Um, but I think that, you know, having all the information out there uh, is really, really helpful. So that was really, really great. And that was yeah. Dr. Trelevin, Tre I believe. Yep. Yes, from Australia. Um, so what I thought was really cool about that, and, and you know, I have to say, so my background um, is way more so heavy in neuro and not so much in musculoskeletal. I didn't have a great musculoskeletal clinical, and I've just really shied away from it. And one of the great things about being in my academic position is my students very much inspire me because my students are so much better well-rounded than I am. So if they've definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone. And so 
you know, I, I ignored the C-spine, I think a lot in the past because I was like, I'm neuro. I don't like, I have vestibular. I don't need to know that. And now really understanding and appreciating the role. And I think that just goes to say like, okay, just because you have neuro or you have a neuro background, you know, it doesn't excuse you being uncomfortable. And, you know, it's, this is definitely something where I'm still doing education and having to like bring myself up to speed because practices changed so much since I graduated PT school in 2003 in this area. And like I said, not super comfortable to begin with, um, but so important. So important. And I loved, there was a slide that she had that spoke about focusing on the entire elephant. Look at the whole elephant. So look at the whole patient, right? When we hear certain things from our patients, we might narrow in on one specific diagnosis or think about one specific intervention that we want to include. But when we think of the role of the neck in dizziness, not necessarily if it's just cervicogenic, that, you know, that buzzword, but what role is the neck playing in our patient's life? And maybe, maybe they have BPPV, but the neck is also playing some type of role in their symptoms. And another one of the takeaways from her program, which I think we, we hear often, but it was nice that she reiterated it, was that when you're listening to a patient's history, oftentimes patients that do have neck involvement tend to have more vague symptoms. You know, they might say that they're lightheaded or they just feel kind of funny, something more vague versus they're probably not telling you they have room spinning vertigo. That's not what's going to clue you into the, into the neck. It's more the, the um, ambiguous symptoms that they, that they report. We talked about uh, Dr. Helminski and her mind-blowing atypical BPPV discussion, which was absolutely amazing. Um, Speaking well, about BPPV, yeah. we can't not talk about Dr. Zuma, right? Oh, my gosh. I think he stole the heart of every single person in the conference. Not only is he, of course, incredibly, um, you know, intelligent and a wonderful physician, but just a wonderful human being all the way around. And one of the interesting things I really got away from his talk is the is changing my assessment for horizontal canal BPPV. Um, and I've never had someone explain that so well, because especially like when I teach my students about horizontal canal, it, horizontal canal, of course, is really challenging. And the the idea with lateralization being so challenging. So I would always do like, okay, I'll do, you know, typically first, of course, do my whole pike dicks to look for posterior canal. And then if that's negative, I just go right into my roll test. And I feel like that's pretty much what a lot of us do. And then, okay, if roll test is positive, then I'll use bow and lean to help lateralize. So he actually suggested starting with the bow and lean. And then using that to help figure out if the material is in ampullary or non-ampullary arm, if it's, if it's um, of course, in, um, in the right side or the left side to help lateralize it, and then going to do the roll test, which I was like, you know, that makes so much more sense to do it that way. It absolutely does. And we actually um, did, it was like maybe our second or third episode, Abby, of Talk Dizzy to Me, I had a challenging case where you, where I actually accidentally fixed the patient doing role testing, right? Because essentially you, you can. So I, I, you know, tells her to one side, got a robust response. And then I switched her to the other side and got nothing. I'm like, oh crap. So then I put her back to the other side 
And then it appeared to, you know, be beating the opposite, having apogeotropic. And I was like, oh, like, what is this? And I turn it to the other side and all of a sudden I reintroduced the debris into the canal. So it was this real like hard thing to kind of figure out once we kind of went back and looked at it and now like analyzed it, it made sense. Um, but doing a bowel and lean might be a great way to avoid accidentally fixing the patient firsthand and confu- you know, creating confusion and then going into role testing and treatment. Um, that made a whole lot of sense once he kind of broke it down. Yeah. And to our listeners, if you haven't used the Zuma maneuver yet, definitely try it with the next patient that you have that has horizontal involvement. And we will certainly link something in the in the show notes to help uh, you more readily find that information. Uh, what else? Oh, there was. Oh, another thing along the lines of BPPV, uh, Dr. Kim talking about what, well, one thing in Dr. Kim's presentation that stood out to me was the cost. And when he really did the math with how many people are diagnosed with BPPV and then how much it costs, you know, each one of those people to get treated for BPPV, maybe they see multiple providers before they actually land in the right provider's hands that helps them, whatever the case may be. The number was astounding. I mean, now, on one slide, I think it said 11 billion, but then when he did the math, if you really did it, it was like 24 billion or something crazy in terms of the medical costs for something that we consider usually one of the more simpler things to treat, right? Yeah. Um, I have to say, too, Dr. Schubert um, did uh, an awesome job presenting on VOR. And a couple of takeaways I took from that was making sure, and it, some of this stuff is kind of reminders and stuff that we forget about, but making sure you have high contrast with your target. Um, I love the idea of them looking into this new way of training uh, VOR in a, uh, what do they call it? Romantic therapy in a uh, darker room with their, um, with their target being, you know, part of a light and the light was only as, as bright as maybe one candle in the room. Um, but aside from that, he talked about the importance of having high contrast for your target for VOR training. And then also something that um, came out in research uh, probably a year ago or so, um, but doing very near target VOR. Mm-hmm. So 15 centimeters from the bridge of your nose and doing VOR to kind of generate a, a, a larger response for the VOR um, reflex which was a really good reminder. That's something that we can start using to challenge our patients and reminding us to kind of change and vary the distance for VOR training. Don't just get stuck with, you know, the arm's length away, you know, go far, go near and and change all of that up. Speaking of VOR, who was it that talked about changing the image or target that you use? Who what presentation was that? I, I believe you're referring to um, Dr. Klatt when she yeah. was talking yeah. about doing the VOR in people with cognitive deficits. Mm-hmm. That that was, again, astounded by just the creativity of physical therapists out there. So she was talking about doing VOR exercises in people with dementia, that, that vestibular impairments being very underdiagnosed in that population, and just the coupling of the vestibular system and the rolling cognition, which is to be honest, something I didn't fully appreciate um, before her talk. She did a really great job laying that foundation. Um, But what was so creative is to make it easier for patients with dementia to do exercises for when you were doing horizontal motion, she had a picture of something like they didn't like. So it was beets. Someone didn't like the vegetable beets and they were saying, no, I don't like beets. And then it was something, you know, you really like to get the vertical motion. So you're saying like no to something you don't like and yes to something you like. Yeah. And I love that, especially because 
even for patients who are, you know, they have no cognitive impairment, that is an exercise that most people say they do not enjoy doing. So mm -hmm. what if we made it a little bit more fun by adding something that they like to look at, like maybe a grandchild and then they're doing up and down, yes motion, right? Something to make the exercise just a little bit, you know, I don't know, a little bit more appealing so that they do it as often as we want them to do it. Another presentation that I loved, I thought he was so entertaining, just like Dr. Zuma, was Dr. Seamungle. Did I say that correctly? Yes. He, he was talking about um, basically silent BPPV. And what I thought was so cool was when you think about patients who have maybe pretty significant balance impairment, but they're not reporting vertigo necessarily, you might not initially think to check them for BPPV. But it's true that in this these types of patients, BPPV could be the culprit of their imbalance. And he showed this incredible video where he put the patient uh, into a sideline position to test for BPPV. I think he did the sideline test for BPPV. And all of a sudden you see the most robust nystagmus, but this patient is emotionless. He's not experiencing any type of vertigo at all. He's really just looking at the camera thinking, you know, what is Dr. Seamungle doing to me right now is how I interpreted it. And then he takes them through the maneuver to correct the BPPV or put the BPPV um, into remission. And all of a sudden, you know, that, that nystagmus that we saw so robustly in the first part was gone. And I would assume that his balance then improved. We didn't get to see the full scope of the patient's recovery, but so cool. Yeah. And I think it was really interesting. Um, you know, personally, I do a whole bike dicks in anyone 65 or older, just because of the prevalence in that population. But it was also a good reminder of like, okay, I mean, how long does that take for us to do two minutes, maybe three minutes um, for setting up an explanation, you know, and I have definitely seen patients in the past were like, wow, their nystagmus is going crazy. And they're like, yeah, I'm a little dizzy. You know, these patients might not complain of the traditional spinning dizziness that would be in the history, a trigger for us to do those tests. So like a good reminder to be thorough in the positional testing. Yeah, I think um, the studies out there show that there's about one in 10 um, in urban, you know, community dwelling uh, uh, settings that have undiagnosed BPMV. And then I believe that there was a study out of Hopkins that showed that undiagnosed BPMV led to a threefold increase uh, of fall risk. Yeah. So we definitely want to make sure we're screening our patients for that, even if they're if they're just in there for an imbalance, you know, uh, and gait type of a uh, diagnosis, you know, doing a Dick's Hall Pike or, or roll testing is, I think, crucial. It should be part of our just normal overall screening, just like we would do manual muscle testing um, and screens along that way. Did you have a, a favorite presenter for the conference? Oh, I mean, they they were all so good. It's like, how do you pick your favorite child, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is true. But I, I do have, to, I mean, of course, Dr. Dr. Zuma in just that, um, like I said, that completely rethinking how I think horizontal canal and how I teach horizontal canal um, was super interesting. Um, and actually, I really, really like Dr. Della Santina on mm. the vestibular implants because, you know, as a therapist, this is obviously something, you know, we're not going to be involved in surgery or anything like that. But I, I love the idea of it's like you can augment 
the afferent that the patient is missing and just all the doors that that opens up to me as a therapist and and of course opens up to the patient's functionality and what i what i really liked from him and appreciating you know from the view from a physician where he suggested that the physical therapist be the one to program these implants, just like audiologists are programming cochlear implants. And at first I was like, oh, I don't know. That sounds really complicated. And then I was like, that's really, really cool. And yeah, who who better to do it than us? Like looking at their gait, looking at their balance, looking at their VOR response. And then we can, you know, make these tweaks and work with the patient to figure out what's best. And I, I thought that was um Obviously, he has a lot of respect for physical therapists if he's suggesting that. I have to say that was the one talk that we had to miss because uh, we had to catch our flight. Um, I was so sad because I had heard Dr. Della Santina talk at uh, Mount Sinai. There was an international conference for contributions for vestibular health, I think it was. And they were just um, talking about at that point, they Im implanted on eight different patients and he showed what the implant did and how the little gyroscope worked along with eye movements and the videos were just amazing. And I was, mm -hmm. I was so looking forward to hearing him talk, but um, Dr. Kingma, you know, leading up into Dr. Della Santina's talk, you know, he was also a very um, engaging, fantastic presenter. And I loved hearing about the initial trials with the vestibular implant and how that's been helping people with bilateral loss because when you think about it, people that have uh, bilateral loss due to ototoxicity or other reasons, I mean, it is a game changer. That is that is a huge um, hit to quality of life. And now to have this potentially uh, vestibular implant be something to give them back that quality of life is just so exciting. It's amazing where we're going in our field. Yeah, it really is. I had a patient once who she actually had all three of her afferents impaired. It's the only patient I've ever had who's had dings in all three. Oh. Um, she has, so he, I'm in New Orleans. So in South Louisiana, there's a prevalence of a syndrome called Usher syndrome. Um, so for maybe your listeners who aren't familiar, it's a genetic condition and causes loss of hearing, loss of vestibular system and loss of vision as well. Um, and there are lots of different subtypes, but so hers, started to impact her when she was, I believe, in her 50s, like late 50s. And when she was my patient, she was in her early 70s. But on top of that, she also had some kind of like a Guillain-Barre type syndrome to where she lost that caused her to lose um, both she had some peripheral weakness and sensory issues. So we're dealing with loss of all three. So again, for this patient, um, what a great avenue moving forward to have something to augment because she's got nothing to lean on. Wow. Wow. You know, it, what you just said reminded me of something or a couple sentences leading up to this was Dr. Cushing's presentation too. I thought just like that, hearing about that patient is inspirational and what a implant a vestibular implant could do for her. But also Dr. Cushing's talk, I thought was so inspiring. She was so passionate and I could just feel the compassion that she has for her patients. She talked a lot about children and how hearing loss in children can impact their their ability to function and balance. And she played some really cool videos where you see kids, you know, with hearing loss versus with some help in their hearing and how their function improves. That was really interesting, um, especially when she showed kids with just unilateral hearing loss versus having their hearing um, mitigated on both sides. So, um, you know, the pediatric side of things is is never anything that I've been 
um, super comfortable with just because we don't see it as often, but it's a really, really interesting field that I think that we need to start diving more into Abby so that, uh, we're, we're better informed because it was, it was really interesting. It was really cool to see. Yeah, I love the videos of the conference. There are so many great yeah. videos in all the presentations. Yes. A video, if a picture is worth a thousand words, a video is worth a million. Yeah. Agreed. You know, speaking of videos too, Dr. Hall was showing videos of some games basically that we can incorporate maybe in the future anyway. It sounds like they're still in the development and testing phase, but some games to help make patients more engaged in vestibular rehab and also for more remote vestibular rehab. And one of the games, uh, I think it was called Smashing Castles or something like that. <laughs> That was my favorite one, but it was it was cool because you're accomplishing something in the game, but you're also accomplishing something from a vestibular rehab standpoint. Well, how many times do we hear that the exercises are boring? Mm -hmm. You know, who wants to stare at uh, beats or a letter and turn their head back and forth for so many you know seconds, minutes, or whatever? But having a, an app with those games on it and having it be interactive is actually genius. That was really cool and really exciting to see. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, you know, when, when doing vestibular exercises, I actually have all my patients use their thumb because I never want the excuse to be, you don't have your target on you. You always have your thumb on you. So again, I know high contrast, this is not the ideal target. I completely acknowledge that. Um, but it is always there, but that's the awesome thing about the phones and the apps. Like, let's be honest, we always have our phones on us all the time. And instead of like scrolling through social media, we could have our patients engage in an app and, you, you know, not not only like it's engaging, you know, you're applying it for repetitions. It's going to be great for neuroplasticity, which is what we're trying to accomplish with our VOR training. Yeah. Imagine we work with Apple to, instead of get the pop-up that says you've been on Instagram too long, time to close. It's <laughs> you've been on Instagram too long, time to do your vestibular rehab. <laughs> uh, anything else that we can think of that we really took away? There were definitely more speakers than what we've talked about thus far and more amazing presentations. Can you guys think of any that come to the top of your head as we wrap things up? I think one thing that I want to say overall, not specific about any one speaker, but, um, you know, I really came away from this conference and, and I, I felt this beforehand, but it really sort of sunk in that we have a very strong basic basis in basic science, really good understanding of how the vestibular system works. Of course, scientists are still working and, and discovering and, and making new discoveries. Um, but what I think is really cool is that the basic science understanding of the VOR function, the role of the vestibular system and balance perception. And some of the mechanics with the BPPV treatment, they really lend themselves and having that good understanding gives us much credence and support for what we do as vestibular therapists. And I think if as a therapist, if you are heavily relying, not only of course on research and evidence-based what we need, but we're also heavily relying on physiologic principles and that, and that basic science information that's going to strongly underpin what we do. Absolutely. And, and we can be so grateful for having events like the um, International Conference for Vestibular Rehab to re-energize us, to re-educate us and keep us up to date on everything because there is a lot of research going on right now with the vestibular system and its contributions to balance and its contributions to quality of life. And there's so much coming out. I mean, I have my, my Google Scholar alerts, you know, popping stuff out every single day of new things that are posting. So sometimes it can be hard to keep up. 
And I have to say that going to the conference was just, it was a breath of fresh air. It was just so exciting to see people um, all in the same area, all liking the same things, can all nerd out and talk with each other. It just really was um, a nice refresher. It was a great way to kind of um, get back into the swing of things and feel like we're moving forward in our field. Yeah, it was, it was honestly so inspiring and, and refreshing being around so many faces and we like to call vestibuloholics. It was so fun to meet people that you've met on social media, but never in real life. And I just also want to give a little shout out here uh, toward the end that we had so many people approach us about listening to Talk Dizzy to me and enjoying the topics that we cover and maybe gave us some tips about topics to cover next. And please don't wait until 2025 for the next International Conference of Vestibular Rehab to tell us these things. Shoot us some DMs, email us. We'd love to hear from you guys. The funny thing about doing podcasting is you don't engage with your audience. We have no idea who the faces are that are listening to us. So reach out to us. Reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you and collaborate with you. And Rachel, we thank you so much for the work you and your team put into the ANPT, the vestibular SIG, and this conference in particular. We also thank you so much for joining us on the show. You're very welcome. And I just want to say the AMPT, the vestibular SIG, and the conference would be nothing without its members and the people who come and engage. So, so happy to have so many enthusiastic therapists involved. Well, thank you. Thank you. And we'll be sure to put everything in the show notes that we talked about today as far as where you can find ANPT, where you can find the vestibular SIG, how to become a member. Um, check the show notes for all those links. And if you're not a member, you should sign up today. So thank you again. Um, we'll talk to you guys soon. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.